This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Do you like sci-fi, fantasy, action, adventure, and comic books? Then you've come to the right place for your weekly dose of anything and everything geek. So strap in and let's get this show on the road. Welcome to the Science Fictionary Podcast. Welcome to the Science Fictionary Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the ScienceFictionary.com, where we discuss all things in the world of sci-fi, fantasy, action, adventure, and superheroes in the world of pop culture. I am Daniel, and joining me tonight are Marisha. Hey, everybody. And Andrew. What's going on, everybody? And David. Hey, everyone. All right, and we are going to pick up where we left off the last episode. Uh, discussing our what we consider the pillars of sci-fi in the novels category or literature. Um, you can catch this week's other episode if you didn't get the first half of our list. But we're on our third book each here. So I'm just going to go ahead and start this one off because the next entry on my list is the Barsoom series uh, by Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, starting with The Princess of Mars, which... I said I had to expand this into literature because this began as a serial, a right. magazine serial published in 1912, uh, eventually collected into the first Barsoom novel, A Princess of Mars. Uh, since then, there have been 11 books in this series, and the 12th one actually is going to come out this year. Obviously, of course, not written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, but from the publishing company, his family overseas. So they will consider that part of the canon. But, like I said, I sort of based my list on what novels I felt like really cemented the idea of some of the mainstays, Mm -hmm. some of the tropes that we can see continuously in science fiction. Uh, This one actually involves us traveling to another planet. Of course, Mm -hmm. Mars right here in our solar system in the earliest 20th century, that seemed like as far as you'd ever need to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, of, of course, Andrew mentioned Foundations, which also sees us uh, expand the human race into the future. But John Carter Mars, I feel like, was really the book that, that did that, that. That was the one that, let's go to another planet and let's explore these what kind of life forms may be there? What kind of sentient life forms may be there mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily human? It's really our first exposure to real, sentient, thinking, breathing alien race. And it's also one of my favorite books. So it's really hard not to include it. I love the John Carter stories. So that's why that's on my list. I don't know if anyone else had that, but we can get Marisha's next one. All right, so my next one, um, keeping again, I I didn't have a, a well, I originally had a um, chronological order, but I had to talk about the other things that other people were talking about when they were talking about them. So my chronological order is gone. Um, so the next thing on my list is Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. I don't know if any of you have read Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's a, um, and I tried to pick things that I have actually read so I could actually talk about them a little more. Um, But it is, it's such an interesting, 
you know, uh, exploration, again, it's it's kind of like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in that it's like it's actually staying on our own planet. But it's so weird and unexpected and really thinks through the scientific implications of what it's saying. Um, it doesn't just, you know, just throw out there. You know, it, it's it's a really well thought through, although kind of, you know, kind of weird and kind of crazy and turns out not to actually be the way it works. But nobody was to know that in, um, in the 1870s. And, and the fact that it was written so long ago, I mean, Jules Verne, in a lot of ways, created what we think of as sci-fi. This sort of intrepid explorer. Um, around the, didn't Jules Verne also write Around the World in 80 Days? So that sort of... Are you talking about tropes in science fiction? That sort of like, you know, explorers, you know, going into uncharted and unexplainable and fantastical environments. Jules Verne really, I think, inspired, um, you know, because you see like a lot of these, these things, H.G. Wells and, you know, John Carter and things like this being written by people who are probably directly inspired by Jules Verne. Um, because so many people read Jules Verne's works and were inspired by them to go out, to go out and explore things that they had never conceived before, and also to um, to really to write about them, to 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 come to sit down and to dream up other fantastic um, and unexpected places. So. Journey to the center of the, center of the Earth is my my next selection. Is actually uh, was 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 next on my list uh, just from my same knowledge about it. Of course, like I said before, I've never read these books, but it's all the same reasons of this this epic mm-hmm. exploration along with sci-fi, and, and it really seems to sort of uh, so, as as we've discussed, like with Star Wars, how it kind of like taps in a little bit of that fantasy mm-hmm. at the same time. Journey to the Center of kind of treads that line a little bit between sci-fi and fantasy. And, and I have been writing a, trying to write a sci-fi novel and it's literally called Journey to Terror 2. Like it's, it's all about that journey mm-hmm. and, and that's what I enjoy most about it. And so doing research on that, I came across Journey to the Center of the Earth and put it on my list as a book that I really need to read yeah. as somebody who wants to write sci-fi. Yes. It's a it's a really excellent one. And Jules Verne is a much more optimistic writer than, um, mm-hmm. a, you know, I kind of, I've always said that I don't like American literature because it's, you know, dour and unamused <laughs> and... I just like John Steenbeck. I just can't yeah. abide John Steenbeck. All, all the greatest American writers wrote for the screen. Yeah, I mean, like Grapes of Wrath, man. Like, who wants to read that? But Jules Verne now, Jules Verne is like got a much more um, optimistic take on existence. Man, American I cannot believe. So I cannot believe you just bashed. John Steinbeck on this podcast. Oh, <laughs> I just, I have tried. And oh I'm, my you, God. I am a huge literature buff. I love books. But I do not love John Steinbeck. No. 
<laughs> I just can't even. Up there with Tolstoy. Ugh, I can't Andrew, abide Tolstoy any- either. Do do I have anything to say about John Steinbeck? I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> no. The <laughs> sci-fi. All right, my do you next. You have another sci-fi novel I haven't mentioned. I do. I've still got. No, everybody's not out, are they? Because I've still got two books here. How can you have two books? Oh, that's right. You haven't gone yet. All right, go. Your, your, it's your turn. Okay, so my next book on the list is Dune. The writing of Frank Herbert has been instrumental in basically all space-based sci-fi since. And as far as, you know, especially the things that tend to more fantasy, you don't get Star Wars without Dune. Mm -hmm. It was so instrumental in the way that George, in George Lucas's development in love for the genre. Mm -hmm. You get the other thing, the other, the importance of Dune in the way it was one of these, the first sci-fi books that really delved deeply into environmentalism. Dune could have become so convoluted that nobody would have ever made it through it because of the way it gets into government. And It's not an easy read. But it, it explores that human condition mm-hmm. in the way it affects government, the way it in, affects environmentalism. And just because of the effect that it has had, because it directly affected Star Wars, which nothing has had greater impact. No movie has ever had greater impact on popular culture Mm -hmm. than Star Wars. And because this is what inspired Star Wars in a lot of ways, this and a a few other things, you know, Buck Rogers and some things like that, that the influences, it's... It's the culmination of these things, but Dune is instrumental, and that's why it's on my list. Dune is definitely, I had not thought of it in the way you just explained it, but at Dune still, I mean, it is, whether you would consider it one of the pillars or not, it is one of the greatest sci-fi novels ever written. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm not sure where to go from here, except just to ask if anybody else, I think a few of us have already had a couple of duplicates, so I'm not sure we've talked about anything anybody else has, except Andrew has one more. I've Marisha, got- do you have anything else? Well, the fun thing about something like this is um, everybody keeps coming up with the same answers. Everybody keeps stealing my answers. But I do have one that I think hasn't been discussed, which I don't really know that you can have a conversation on foundations of sci-fi in the book department without talking about iRobot. You know, it's such an important one. Um, I mean, even, I mean, obviously you have like your battle droids later on, but your your droids in Star Wars originally, you know, a lot of kind of the obsession with ar- artificial life forms really started with iRobot. And, and it's hard when you're, when you're looking at the Asimov stuff. It's like Jules Verne. It's, he wrote such a large... Yep. Amount and the same with Edgar Rice Burroughs. They wrote so much, right? You just like pick one. I mean, that's like yeah, pick one. And Foundation is such a critical series. Um, it, it's not an accident that the Hugo Awards named it the best all-time series, but right, kind of in the middle of the writing of that series, he also started writing about robotics. I mean, and and the idea that you know, kind of the. I didn't read the entire book, but I, I read, you know, about it. Or I read an excerpt from it. And, you know, you have this robot whose job is basically to be a nursemaid. And the mom doesn't like it because she thinks, what if something goes wrong with it? And the neighbors are, you know, kind of looking at him sideways. And the dad thinks she's crazy, you know. And so the, you know, the laws of robotics, right? That's where we first get the idea that robots have a 
a code um, in, in their, you know, a code in their code, for lack of a better right. descriptor. Well, it's this, it's this idea that that it's we developed robo- we've robots have come so far, androids or, or wherever we are at this point have come so far that we are now they they can somewhat think for themselves. Right. So they have to have this limitation. Right. It's against my programming to so and so and such and such. If we had a dollar for every time three PO told us something was against his programming, <laughs> right? Right. So yeah, I mean I think the the importance of Asimov's I robot it's hard to overstate. Well, because, it, again, like a lot of these things, and what we have found as we've discussed these these pillars of science fiction, is a lot of them are incredibly important, not because of what they did for literature, but because of the way they've crept into real life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And this one, we see it with things like artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. where, where Asimov's three laws are still incredibly important in the idea of creating artificial life. That could be smarter than us, eventually. Right. Certainly certainly creating life that's more knowledgeable than us. Right. So there we go. That's my last selection for the uh, Pillars of Science Fiction. David, do you have anything else before we get to Andrew's last one? Uh, just very, very quickly. I had one more thing that I wanted to mention that I've actually read. This is why it's number one. Um, is just in general, really, all of the Marvel slash DC space universe stuff, mostly mm-hmm. conceived by Jack, Jack Kirby, uh, by yeah. by the legend Jack Kirby. The way that he implemented those sci-fi elements straight into the Marvel universe still mm-hmm. blows my mind. Like the fact that things like Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet and all that kind of stuff exist in the same universe as Spider-Man, I think is really, really cool. And when you delve a little bit deeper into it, you realize that he he set like this futuristic, crazy sci-fi world sort of in the exact same universe as our world, mm-hmm. where there is New York City with Spider-Man swinging around and, and San Francisco and all that stuff. And then out there in the stars... There's so much more going on, mm-hmm. and there's all these civilizations, and it's just a whole little universe onto itself. And I've loved reading about all that kind of stuff, and it's obviously played a huge influence on Marvel itself, which has played a huge influence on just the world in general. Literally, like mm-hmm. all of pop culture has been pretty much ruled by the Marvel universe for the past ten years, and it all culminated. With this, um, with the whole Thanos thing, which all—I mean, Thanos was of course invented by Jim Starlin, but it all started that whole space side of Marvel all all started with Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. I like that. I was just going to ask Andrew for his last one, but you were just going to say something else oh. about David, so go ahead. Well, whenever Daniel, when you said I'm just going to say literature instead of just novels, I was like, well, he's definitely going to pull out uh, something comic related. So I was really surprised uh, that uh, that you didn't. So there you go, David. You did it. So, uh, well, Jack, so Jack somebody Kirby's, had to do it. Jack Kirby's in my Jack Kirby's. Never mind, because I don't want to spoil anything. I'll mention Jack Kirby later in this series. Okay. All right, so So, my last one is one that I might get some pushback on, and it was kind of on the bubble for me until I pushed H.G. Wells 
the time machine out since everybody else had it, is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, sweet Ooh. Jesus. Oh, I love Ooh. that book. Here's the thing. It's by far the latest of, of anything we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. I say by far. It's really only 10 years after a lot of these books that were in the 60s, which was really the 1960s really seemed to be the heyday of science, science fiction, fiction. period. Mm-hmm. But Hitchhiker's Guide didn't come out until 1978. But it did for the sci-fi genre what Monty Python did for the fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. Oh, sweet Jesus. And that it injected the irreverent humor that we still see across the board in all of our movies, including the entirety of the MCU. That's a great it point. It made sci-fi I, I really like that way fun again. It. <laughs> it, re- it was the point where someone wrote a sci-fi book and said it's okay to make fun of these things while you're also telling a serious story about Okay, I, like I can go with that. I like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I just don't think of it on the same level as these other books we've discussed. And like I said, it was on the bubble for me, but since so many people had the time machine on, I pushed it back into my list. And I do think it that changes even, though, things, even though it's later, I, I, I mean, it would be hard to justify doing anything more recent than that. But the fact is, is that Hitchhiker's Guide change the way sci-fi storytelling was told those are our novel list for our pillars of Mm sci-fi that's our novels category and next week i'm not sure which category we're going to do next we still have okay all right so that'll bring us that'll bring us up to our latest installment of our star trek reviews we've been doing every week we started with the original series films Uh, moved into the next generation television series and now we have moved into the next generation era of movies and so last week we talked about generations which brings us up to first contact Mm. uh, the most popular of the next generation films and what really kind of kicked this off was that david had never seen any of this stuff and marisha had not watched a lot of it in a long time so as a first-time viewer, we always go to David with your thoughts on First Contact. Wow, I've been so excited to talk about this all day because I watched First Contact and you kind of hyped it up for me. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll probably be a letdown because you've hyped it up so much, but it exceeded the expectations that you set. I loved this movie. Mm-hmm. Um I've been so excited to talk about it because I think it just resonated with me so well. So many amazing things. Like, where do I even start? My mind is racing. Okay. So it opens up straight into the action. You know, I, I love that about it. Um, I love seeing the Borg back. Uh, I said before, the Borg are by far my favorite uh, Star Trek villain because all they're so completely opposite from everything they've ever faced their tactics don't work you can't give them a hug you can't give them a high five you can't give them a pat on the butt they want to kill you or they want to ignore you they want to conquer you that's it they want to assimilate um, you they want to assimilate you exactly we're just trying to add to the hive they're trying to add to the hive that's it they have one goal one mind no reasoning no thought no nothing um so i love them Uh, I love the real focus and expanding on Picard's character in this. Mm -hmm. Very much 
Picard's movie. I love the directing. Jonathan Frakes directed this one. And mm-hmm. I think he did a fantastic job. I thought the movie was beautiful to watch. One of my complaints about Generations was that half of it looked great and half of it looked just awful. And this movie looked incredible from the very start. Um, you know, once again, the Enterprise, the poor Enterprise was destroyed. They're on E now. <laughs> the poor Enterprise so has was trouble. Destroyed in Generations. And so you get like this redesign of the Enterprise. I think it looks great. I love the idea. You know, this. what actually I thought about was that in the episode, yesterday's Enterprise, when we saw this alternate timeline version of the Enterprise that was very militaristic, it was mm-hmm. like darker and it kind of, this current, like Enterprise E kind of, looks a little bit like that. And I mm-hmm. like that about it because I, I realized that at this point in the Federation, they know they're going to war. They're either going to go to war with the Borg or the Romulans. Something's coming. There's going to be a conflict. And so they built the Enterprise to kind of be a bit more militaristic, I felt like. And I really like that about it. I like that design, which mm-hmm. is why it also is great that it jumped right into the action. So I really like that. I think everything looked great. I actually love going back, back in time and me. Meeting and and, and we'll seeing the first contact. I thought that was actually a really great idea, and I, I love the Borg's plan. I think that, that is a like genius, like solid plot and plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes perfect sense, which makes me happy whenever I can't instantly find plot holes. That's really nice. Yeah, and so I loved seeing that. Uh, and, and just a great movie it's 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 one it's probably my favorite out of all the star trek movies at this point i adored watching it i thought it was very very funny while also being extremely serious and tense and dramatic the stakes have well i guess they're pretty freaking high in every movie huh but they've never been higher so to speak while also it's this movie was hilarious i had so many laugh out loud moments watching this movie um while also having like jaw dropping moments because of just the drama and the amazing acting. The acting's never been bad from any, and they're they're all amazing actors. Patrick Stewart, like, and he's always been great. But that scene when he's talking to Lily, just like mm-hmm. I had to watch it twice. Like I, it was so great. Loved Lily. I thought she was a great. Addition. I just have so many notes. I'm just going off here. <laughs> I thought she was a great addition. I loved seeing her be there, calling John Luke out on his crap. I like that. Um, something that's always and I love Star Trek, but one thing that's always kind of bugged me is this idea that they're so evolved and we're primitive and they've moved past all of that. While and and Lily calls John Luke out because John Luke's like, "Oh, we've moved past the primitive nature of revenge," and she's like. Shut up. No, you have not. You're all still human, and that's what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. I love that scene. I love the Moby Dick thing when he starts reciting Moby Dick and explaining it to Lily, who lived closer to when that book was written, but she still hadn't read it just because of the world that she comes from. Like, it's all she's been living a war, it seems like, her whole life, you know? So, like, he has had time to read it. I thought that was a great little 
edition. And oh my god, when he loses his temper and he, and he goes on his big speech and he's like, "I will not. We 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 fall back. We we, we get attacked. We fall back. I will not anymore. I've given up too much. I will not lose the Enterprise." Jaw dropping moment. Just it was so a great well moment. acted. It was a great scene. He destroys the model ships. I thought that it was awesome. I really, really do. Um, like I said, incredible lines. It's very, very um, I love and speaking of that scene, one of the things I love about the movie is that you get that great character development from John Luke where Lily convinces him that he does not need to continue this path of revenge and, and be that captain from Moby Dick and, and, and go down with the ship and all of that. He doesn't have to do that. He can let go. And mm-hmm. so he gets that moment of real character development. And this is genius writing, I think, but you still got to have him go fight the Borg queen because after he has that moment, he hears some data and it doesn't matter how many speeches you give John Luke about how he doesn't need to go down with the ship and blah, 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 blah. If Data's in trouble, John Luke is there. And I, I, that's, all, that's one of the biggest themes in all these movies. And it's one that I adore and I love seeing. Without question, without thought, oh God, Data's still here. I've got to go save him. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you still get to have that moment. You still got the excellent character development. And that whole scene, that whole arc about him learning to let go, but then you still get to have him go and save the day anyway, because he's the captain of the Enterprise, and that's what he does. Yeah, and I loved it. I love Data in this. It's so, oh my god, one of the best lines in, in, in this movie. So many great lines. The best lines at the end where he's like, two milliseconds." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, how long did you think about that? And it's like, yeah, not not for a second. Did Data think about betraying? But it was an eternity for an android. Right, right, right. right. But in re- yeah, yeah, such a great line. Um, so I thought that that was super awesome. I loved the Borg Queen. I don't know what else to call her. Like the Borg Queen. I mean that that's how um, that's how it's built in the. Okay, that's exactly right. Uh, the Borg Queen. Um, I actually really liked that giving the Borg. And you know, one of the things I love about the Borg is that your head doesn't work, but it was right. nice to give well, him a little bit of a personality. One of the things I wanted to ask you was how yeah. Data's conversations with the Borg Queen affected your perspective of the Borg. Yeah, so I actually figured you'd ask about that because I've always said I love that you can't have a conversation with them, but here they are having a conversation. But I still think it worked because even though you're giving her a personality they still kept that concept of there's only one thing I want and it's to assimilate. But then you add a little bit more to it and you said that, that you learn a bit more about the Borg that Borg were pretty much once just like any other organic life form. But they included this technology because they wanted to make themselves perfect, which I think is, I, I said it before about Data, that Data's whole story is about him striving every day to be in in, in Data's day, which this movie does another great job of. They reference back to 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 the entire series a ton. They reference back a lot. Uh, like for example, when she goes to seduce Data, 
he literally says the line that he told um that he told Tasha like I'm fully functional like I thought that was hilarious I love that callback mm-hmm. um but it, it's they're trying to make everyone closer to perfection which is what data's whole story has been in data's day says i will spend every day striving to be a better self and i said isn't that what we all do that's what the borg are doing too that's what everybody does every single day is just striving to be a better person being a better version of themselves and that's kind of what the borg are doing they're still keeping that element that i love of you can't negotiate with them you can't they just want to simulate, but there's a bit of personality to it. Then again, at the end, John Luke does negotiate, but then not really because, like, she knew that Data was already. But, but I still I liked it. I thought it was great. Um, I like I do like the Queen, and there is in the same way that Data was like, I'm almost sad that she's gone. For some reason, at the end there, I was almost a little bit sad to see her die. Like she just had that effect on me. Well, the the Berg, the Borg Queen serves her purpose for this movie. Mm-hmm. Overall, for the lore of the Borg, it's not a concept I'm a, I'm crazy about. Um, really, I feel like when I yeah. have more time to think about it, I'll probably think the same way. But for the purposes of the movie, I think she was a great addition, and I think it was great it, for it, Data's. It served the it served the story well. Mm-hmm. It did, I think. and um, But yeah, that's one of the lines that I love. One more quick note, and then I'll stop ranting for a while. point is, I love this movie, and my absolute favorite part is during the uh, rocket ship takeoff, when he starts freaking out and being like, no, I can't take off without it. I can't take off without it. And they're like, what is it? We got up board. He goes, oh, no, I found it. And then Magic Carpet Ride starts playing. Yep. <laughs> that was... Just the biggest smile on my face that you've ever seen. <laughs> it's magic carpet, right? And they're taking off. Like, I love that. I love the use of music in movies. It's so yes. important. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, that was a great... Love, that was a great... Love the entire was. character of... Love the entire character of Zephyr and Cochran. Anyway, the yeah. idea oh, that yeah. when you realize your heroes weren't perfect... Well, well, but we get to see an interesting thing with Cochran in that he's sort of representative of the people of that time Mm -hmm. and that he's selfish and and still looking out for himself, you know, where the whole idea of of Star Trek is that we're we're looking out for humanity's best interest. And right. And, so we get and to see they meet him. Interesting that Cochran sort of jump started it. Right. And we so we see that evolution in him that eventually sparks that same evolution in the entire human race. Right. Right. Exactly. No, very like you said, very representative of his time. And he accomplished such great things, even being the flawed man that he was, that now in the future we see mm-hmm. of Star Trek, he's you know, almost deified. He's mm-hmm. so well revered for accomplishing this this great thing that propelled Earth so far in the future. And and that's kind of what I was saying about when you realize your your heroes aren't perfect. It's a great examination of the fact that you know we can sit back. Not, we can and in this time we can sit back and look at Abraham Lincoln for all that he accomplished and the great things he did for mm-hmm. this country and this world. And if we went back and met. Lincoln, we would find out 
he was flawed too. We're all human, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just the first example that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. But but you get my point. Yeah. And it was a great examination of the fact that we have to sort of step back and realize sometimes that our heroes are not perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. And and they know that they have insecurities and worries and flaws too. You know, we see him almost be overwhelmed with what a great man they all think he is whenever he knows he's just some asshole who wants to make money off a fast ship, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he just can't handle that kind of pressure of, of knowing he was going to be that. I loved that. I thought he was hilarious. I love when he runs off. Yeah. Cause he's only, cause he's, cause he's flawed. And then that, but that leads to a great moment whenever he's going off and he, and he tells Riker that, you know what? Stop saying I'm so great. I just wanted to do this for money. And Riker says, someone once said, don't try to be a great man. Just be a man and let history make its own judgment. Hmm. And it's like, that's rhetorical. No- I'm reading this, by the way. I'm not just memorizing this. But it's like, that's rhetorical nonsense. Who said that? You did 10 years from now. Mm-mm. Another just, on that spot. Just another great example of the writing. Yeah, standing over there. Yeah. It's like just a great example of, of, of the excellent writing in this in this movie mm-hmm. just absolutely hilarious moments while having deeper meanings and just like i i, I bursted out laughing at certain points like oh at the end when they meet the vulcans and the vulcans like live long and prosper mm-hmm. and then he's like thanks can't do, this thing. Can't do the salute yeah <laughs> he can't yeah. do the thing yeah. and then he's like shakes his hand and he's like thanks yeah like, <laughs> that's so funny to me uh great movie i loved it it's, it's been my favorite so far it, it felt this has been the best made movie since the wrath of khan i so i think undiscovered country is just as that's that's just as much of quality film i think quality wise i do say i would say that this is the most fun star trek movie oh yeah it, it's, is so it is it's my, it's my favorite say. next generation movie for sure it, it, it is the most fun, while also being, so far, the most tense and serious and dramatic in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, it has that, I feel like it really does have a perfect balance of of the fun, full-of-life parts of Star Trek with, with, and I think it was great actually separating the crew for that, where down on Earth they're kind of joking, having fun. And then up on the Enterprise, they're dealing with this with the Borg. Right. They're still making jokes up there. John Luke is great. Like he he, I love the wittiness. He's he's always he's cool, cool under pressure, and he's super serious and he takes things seriously. But also, he's not afraid to, you know, crack a witty line here and there. You know, he's no he's no stranger to one liners. No. Uh, sure. the reports of my simulation have been greatly exaggerated. Like yeah. <laughs> that was a that was a great line. But anyway, so do you feel like this is the best film you've watched so far, original series and Next Generation? Maybe it'll change when I have more time to think about it. But so far, I, I'd say initial reaction, yeah. I can't think of many flaws with this movie. To be honest, I kind of really so, like it all. So, Marisha, your first time seeing it in how long? Okay, so full disclosure, I didn't actually watch it today, but I have this one I have seen more recently um, than some of the others. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, it was. It's it's been a week. Okay, so 
the first time I saw this movie, I had watched, I don't even, I don't think I had seen any Next Generation. And I had seen some of the original series. And so let me tell you, all kinds of confusing. Like, okay, who are the Borg? Where did they come from? Like, okay, so... Because so, so when I went back and watched The Next Generation, it's like the whole, like, you know, Borg assimilation thing. It was like, well, I already knew how They're that ended because I saw the movie. Right. Um, but the interesting thing about it is, in, in spite of the fact of there being a few things that it was like, you know, you kind of had to fill in mentally. Um, this movie actually works and is still really entertaining and memorable, even without the context of all the rest of Star Trek. And that's really an accomplishment for a Star Trek movie yeah. because it mm -hmm. tends to be so predicated on, you know, previous information and not, you know, having seen it originally and not having really much of a Star Trek knowledge base at all. Um, it was still, you know, the fact that it was still, you know, you could follow it and understand it and really be invested in it. That's, that's a pretty big accomplishment for a Star Trek movie. Mm -hmm. It's weird to say, but... There's a part of me that would think if I want to get someone into Star Trek, show them this movie first because I think it's so good. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't because, of course, I would start them from the at least the first movie. But but there is that part of me when I was watching it thinking like, man, if I want my friends to watch Star Trek, I should show them this because it kind of fits everything that I love about Star Trek. And I just think it's that good of a movie. Yeah, it is. And it does work. I'm watching it. Sorry. Oh, I was just saying it does work, even without all the context. It does work. I think it does. It because it's a great movie on its own. Like the just the characters and the art that they go through, and you learn a lot mm -hmm. about them right then and there. Of course, like the are obviously super impactful with the context of seven seasons of television. Right. But I would imagine that even without that, it probably still would have been a pretty cool moment. You know, mm -hmm. it's the kind of moment that would bring me to tears now after watching the show. But right. still, I think it works really well as a moment. I mean, I keep saying it. Incredible actor. Does a yeah. great job. I love seeing Data. Like, he gets skin. Like, that's mm -hmm. such a cool thing that I never thought I would see for Data. But he gets skin. Yeah. And he starts feeling touch. It's like, oh crap! What's mm -hmm. happening? You know, and yeah. oh, oh my god, I love him with the emotion chip. I love the emotion chip. Um, <laughs> Poor data, because because it allows for him to have really awesome moments. Mm -hmm. Like whenever <laughs> whenever he cracks one liners at the end when he turns on the queen and he's like, "Resistance is futile," and he freaking destroys the gas can it's like that was awesome i love that for data to get to have those moments mm -hmm. um and to and i love getting him getting to experience those human sensations like he's always wanted like what a great journey for data to go on mm -hmm. that really reaches a good point with first contact you know the way first contact ended i wonder if they had if they knew at that point that they were going to make that they were going to be making more star trek movies because it ends kind of definitively, sort of in the same way that um, the last original series movie ends with them being like, all right, once more into the breach, let's go. It, this one ends with um, yeah. 
him being like, make it so, and then it ship flies away. They go back to home. They defeated the Borg, mm-hmm. Data, John Lou. They've all had their journey. It kind of feels like this was meant to almost be like an ending. Um, so I wonder if if they knew they were going to be making more Star Trek movies at that point. I don't know. I think they sort of felt like if they were going to end it with this one, that's where they would end it. But, you know, like you're fond of saying, money. Money, yeah. money, money. It so. talks. <laughs> so, Daniel, you hadn't but said much. Like, what are your thoughts on this movie? I kind of I kind of touched on a little bit. I, I like the, the Zephyr Cochran story, just all of it. Right. And like uh-huh. I said, I love the examination of what it's really like to meet your heroes. I, I think it's fascinating. I love Data's arc in this film. That David mentioned the skin. This is the closest we ever got to see Data to being human, which is what he's always wanted. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he's human enough to give it up for the greater good. It's mm-hmm. just all of it is wonderfully written. It was written by people who understood these characters, understood how to give them the proper arcs for this film, took an enemy we had seen before in the series mm-hmm. and made them more interesting. Um, which again, like I said, the Borg Queen, the whole idea of the Borg Queen as a whole doesn't necessarily work for me. For the Borg, you always kind of like the idea that they're all just one mind, and knowing that Mm -hmm. there is a leader there pulling the strings makes them a little less autonomous, but it works for this this story. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it is my favorite of the Next Generation films. I think it's most people's. But... We're going to get to Insurrection next week. That'll be interesting. And then I still keep saying I'm ready. I am ready to get to Nemesis. I mm-hmm. want to hear everyone's thoughts on Nemesis. Um, does me, anybody... Does, huh? Go ahead. Where does this rank for you? You keep saying it's your favorite Next Generation movie. Where does it rank for you? And I guess everyone else. Where does it rank for y'all amongst all the Star no, Trek I, movies? I, I still have a fondness and a strong lean towards the uh original series films i i can't help it they're 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 part of my childhood they're too dear to my mm-hmm. heart wrath of khan and undiscovered country to me are still the two best star trek films period um but this one's this one's up there this is a good movie it is a really good next generation story mm-hmm. um i would say it's my number the two. best next generation story Behind. I would put it after Wrath of Khan, and, and it's kind of, it's very similar to the arguments for me for Empire Strikes Back versus either A New Hope or Return of the Jedi. If I put Empire first, because you look at Empire and it's a cinematic masterpiece. It's it's not just a great Star Wars movie. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's one of the best movies ever made. Wrath of Khan falls in that same sort of category. It's hard to kick it out of that number one spot. This when movie, you talk about Star Trek, Wrath of Khan rises above it, the rest of them. It does. It, it's just, it's such a flawless film. This movie, I would put it between Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country just because this one is just so much fun. It's so just Star Trek at its core. And it's, I think, the best of, like you said, the best of the, the Next Generation movies. If I'm just going to watch one, this is going to be real high on the list. If, if I'm just going to pull a Star Trek movie and watch it, this was really high on my list. Which is why this is the random Star Trek movie that 
This is the random Star Trek movie you saw before you got really introduced to Next Generation. Yeah, um, because it's one that Andrew just likes. Well, I I can't. You say like flawless Wrath of Khan, which I agree. Can anyone think of any flaws of this movie? I guess you know it it really that's at the board. It it ticks all the boxes. To you know, it's again, it's like for for me, like if you ask me which. I, I go back and forth on which Star Wars movie is my favorite all the time. Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. But part of me enjoys watching A New Hope or Return of the Jedi more than Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. yeah. Star uh, Return of the Jedi is like if if Star Wars is, is spaceships and aliens and, and just kind of this kind of sense Weirdness. of wackiness... Yeah. Then Return of the Jedi is the most Star Wars Star Wars movie ever made, mm-hmm. and mm. in some ways this is kind of mirrors that. Where on the right day, I mean, I, I put this one up there, right up there with with Wrath of Khan. It's just that there's just something you that that you kind of have to when you talk about Wrath of Khan, you're talking about kind of the pinnacle of. I mean, the Star Wrath Trek of Khan movies. is one that gets pulled out in like greatest villains ever. You know, not just like greatest villains in Star Trek, but you know. Right. But this one's certainly up there for me. Yeah, Wrath of Khan is truly a flawless movie. It is a like I've now watched it twice in total. Like I watched it again after we talked about it last, and it is just an ex like it is a it is an accomplishment of of, of cinema. But the thing is, watching first contact for me. I got the same feelings, and you were comparing to like Empire Strikes Back, everything like that. I agree. This is easily, this is definitely the Wrath of Khan of the Next Generation movies. I mean, it's the second one, right? And it's just like that. It, it's great. All right. So, those are our thoughts on First Contact, and next week, Insurrection. So, David, okay. Mar- Marisha, I'm not sure you've seen Insurrection. I have either, not seen Insurrection. Nope. I haven't watched oh, very long watch time. that for next week. So, awesome. Um, so we have that, and then we're going to be doing the the cornerstones or pillars of of sci-fi. We're, did we decide TV or film? Television. TV. Television. Television. Okay, so yep. we'll have that in our, our next episode as, as well. And everyone put more than four things on your list so that whenever everyone inevitably says Star <laughs> Trek and uh, Twilight Zone, we have something to fall back on. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so that's going to do it for us tonight. And until next time, Marisha, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on princessesandpadawans.com, on Twitter at ppadawans, and on Instagram at princesses underscore and underscore padawans. All right. And Andrew? Okay. You can find me running the Twitter account for this show at sci underscore fictionary. You can drop us a line at the sciencefictionary.com. You can find me every Tuesday hosting our other, our other show, Course Not Radio Underground where we talk about all things Star Wars. You can catch me on my Twitch channel at Darklighter580. And as always, be sure to check out Red5Network.com for our podcast as well as our all of the rest of our Red5 family. And David? You guys can find me on Twitter at stay underscore creative DD, or you can find me at my YouTube channel, Creative D&D. And I am Dan C. Peeps on Twitter, and we'll see you next time.